Welcome to Digital Plus Insights, brought to you by HCL Software, your connection to the Digital Plus economy. Each episode features intimate conversations with industry leaders, exploring the integrated technology that's shaping our world. Delve into the insights, innovations, and ideas that define the way we work, communicate, and do business. It's more than digital. It's Digital Plus. Join the conversation. The future begins today. Hey there, I'm Mark Durham, and this is the Digital Insights Podcast. I'm here with Robert Leong, Senior Director and Head of Product Management for HCL Big Fix. Uh, and uh, I'd like to welcome you, first of all, Robert. Uh, Mark, gonna... it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about threat intelligence, which is a slightly terrifying and certainly intimidating phrase. Uh, maybe we could start by talking about what that is and where it comes from. What, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, actually, you're right, Mark, which is that threat intelligence tends to be something that people find kind of frightening. Uh, they don't know where they get it from. They, and it's right to start with what is it exactly? So it's a great question. I would say that uh, threat intelligence is created from information and data that is collected, it's sorted, <clears throat> and then it's analyzed to produce knowledge. So threat intelligence is knowledge about attacks. And I would also argue about attack attempts by adversaries that have occurred or might occur against targets. Now, I would further say that threat intelligence focuses on things like how an attack works, attack behaviors, tactics, te techniques, procedures, the objective of an attack, the target of an attack, and then also threat actors, although that is harder to figure out, including who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. So threat intelligence comes from analyzing attacks and attack attempts, and as I said, curating information and data and then analyzing it to produce knowledge. Now, the thing that gets confusing about threat intelligence is that it does and can come from all across the defender ecosystem. So there's literally hundreds of sources of threat intelligence across the cybersecurity landscape. So now some of it comes from official organizations like the U.S. government, for example, places like um, CISA, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and uh, MITRE, which a lot of people don't know about, and other friendly governments like the, the Israelis, for example. And of course, also from private industry. Um, my buddies at Trellix, uh, CrowdStrike, Google, Microsoft, they all have threat intelligence teams. So I, I might have flogged that to death, but that's my answer. Well, it's it's a lot, but let's 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 boil it down a little bit and say, look at what are the main types of threat intelligence? What what would they be and and how can they be used? Types of threat intelligence. I would argue that there's actually three main categories, and I would call them uh, strategic, tactical, and sometimes people add a third category called operational, and uh, let me describe them. A strategic threat intelligence is all about understanding the broader threat landscape, things like emerging threat trends, evolving adversarial attack techniques, novel, innovative capabilities, and changing motivations of threat actors. So. Strategic threat intelligence helps organizations look at high-level anal analytics and form things like, what's your overall cybersecurity defense policy? What are your defense approaches? How are you going to look at this? What are your overarching 
architectures and what's your vision for how you want to look at this and defend against it, as well as things like resource allocation. How are you going to spend your time, people and money, things like that. For example, if you knew that a nation state was going after hospitals and medical clinics and you happen to be a hospital and medical clinic, then you would likely evaluate the attack surface of your operational infrastructure based on the source of attacks that uh, these, these actors are doing. And you would look at your overall countermeasures, your overall compensating controls and your response mechanisms. Uh, what you want to do is limit your operational downtime and figure out how to measure your cyber risk and recovery time. So that's strategic. I would say there's two more. So let me see if I can speed up a little bit here. Uh, tactical threat intelligence deals with detailed knowledge about specific adversarial campaigns, specific threats, specific threat actors. It informs tactical decisions and plans that need to be made that are specific to particular threats. So it concentrates on things like knowing how a specific attack works, what it's after, what its objective is, and as well as tactical things that you do to detect that particular adversarial campaign. For example, uh, let's see, suppose that you have a tactical threat and that it ha involves Conti ransomware and that Conti ransomware is very prevalent in your environment. They're attacking a lot of people that look like you. Well, we know that Conti ransomware the, uh, exploits 44 CVEs. A lot of people think it's like eight or nine. According to Conti leaks um, on Twitter, it's 44 CVEs. If you want to close the exploitable vulnerability attack surface against Conti, you need to close 44 CVEs. And that would be a very tactical thing to do. That makes sense. That makes sense. So how about this yeah. operational category? Uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, I would argue that it's it's new, but it's not new. Operational intelligence provides uh, real-time or near real-time information about ongoing threats, ongoing vulnerabilities, and adversarial activities. For example, I've talked to defenders who say, hey, we saw very strange processes on six machines, and they were acting very strangely. They had odd processes. They had files we'd never seen before. And so the security analytics team, the SecOps team, the incident response team, decided to pull all six machines and sacrifice them because there wasn't actually anything particularly valuable on those machines, but they wanted to see how the attack works. So they pulled it into an isolated subnet and they sacrificed the endpoints to observe what the adversary was doing. And that's how they were able to collect what I call operational threat intelligence on an attack in real time that was underway. So Tom Cruise was not involved in this scenario in any way. <laughs> are, 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 are we sure? I, have I, not, really, I, I haven't seen the latest movie, so he might actually be involved. That, I don't think so. That sounds 100% cinematic, and I wish I'd been there. Um, so, so you talked a little bit about the sources of, of this information. Uh, can you tell me, you mentioned CISA. Can you tell me a little bit about them, what they are and, uh, and, and, and what they do? Yes, and it's a good question, Mark, because I've actually run into some people overseas who did not know who CISA was, even though they were in SecOps, which I was a big surprise to me. CISA is the U.S. government's cyber defense agency. It's an acronym. Let's see what it stand for. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure. I think it's Security Agency. Yeah, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. I think I got that. Okay. They, they work with the cyber defense community to help defend against adversarial threats. So they partner with uh, industry to collaborate and figure out how to build out a more secure and flexible, uh, you know, non-brittle defense for U.S. infrastructure. So it's a U.S. government thing. And their first priority is to harden 
U.S. government assets. So think uh, FBI, CIA, Homeland Security, you know, all mm-hmm. of these guys. That's what they're worried about, of White House and things like that. They are the operational lead for U.S. government federal cybersecurity. They're responsible for overall national coordination. Uh, what sort of things do they do? They publish binding directives. That's what they call them, uh, binding directors, BDs, I think they call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those talk about, hey, uh, you must take these actions. Here's how an attack works. Here's what you need to, to defend against it. Here's the exploits uh, that are used against the vulnerabilities. You must take these actions. And it usually has to do with uh, closing the attack surface of, of um, uh, patching uh, things, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. So they will come in not only with threat intelligence, but with specifically what the agencies must do and when they must do them. So that sounds very authoritative and, and you know, very pragmatically helpful. Yes, it, it absolutely is. They do publish quite a bit of, I would call them, we talked about operational threat intelligence. They mm-hmm. publish quite a bit of that. Um, they publish the uh, most famous example, recent one, which is within the last year and a half, two years, is the known exploited vulnerabilities catalog, which says, hey, We've detected the exploit of these vulnerabilities used in actual attacks in the wild in U.S. government ecosystem. Here's what they are. Here's the patch for it. And this is when you actually have to have it patched. So it's urgent, it's important, and it's actionable threat intelligence, both from a strategic and tactical planning perspective. Now, CISA does a whole lot more than that, but uh, that's one big example of what they do. I mean, that sounds immensely valuable. So you mentioned an organization called MITRE. Uh, can you tell, tell us more about that? Yeah, MITRE, if you're outside the cyber defense community, you may not know who they are, but they're very, very famous within the community. <clears throat> they were, let me see, they were formed in uh, the 50s, I think 57 or 58. Uh, that was over 65, 66 years ago. They operate what are called federally funded R&D centers. I think they call them FFRDs. We love three and four letter acronyms. Uh, They are in Massachusetts and in, I think, McLean, Virginia. Uh, They were spun out of MIT in 1958 uh, during the Cold War. And it was originally founded uh, by folks in the Air Force to help bridge between academic research and industry it's a it's a nonprofit, but it's funded with tax dollars so your tax dollars and my tax dollars uh, go to fund um, MITRE and they do a lot of stuff that people didn't realize they did so they helped develop for example the FAA air traffic control systems uh, they Seriously? developed yeah if <laughs> no, you ever wonder where the heck that stuff comes from and um, uh, and you hear about um, I, I'm sorry I'm a military buff but you hear about the AWACS planes that run around and they have all this technology that can give situational awareness for the Air Force. AWACS technology was also developed by MITRE, but I, I'm going down a rabbit trail. Let me go back to cybersecurity. They are well known in the cybersecurity world because they produce frameworks like the MITRE, Defa- uh, MITRE ATT&CK as well as the MITRE DEFEND matrix that helps give us not only threat intelligence, but standardized ways to talk about attackers, to t- express threat intelligence in diagrams and infographics, and then also architecturally map out how you would defend against them. What can you do? Can we find it in this matrix? 
So they have a big cybersecurity practice that is funded by uh, National Institute of Standards and, and, and Technology. So NIST, a lot of people are familiar with NIST. They, of course, do tons of cybersecurity stuff on behest of NIST using your tax dollars. That's who MITRE is. And that, that sort of work sounds immensely valuable uh, in in organizing the response that people make because you that kind of documentation it sounds it sounds like it would be incredibly valuable. Can, speaking of acronyms, what does MITRE stand for? <laughs> okay, that's a funny answer. Um, since I, I looked it up uh, a couple of months ago because MIT is my alma mater, and they were involved in the formation of MITRE back in the the fifties. Some people hypothesized that MITRE stood for Massachusetts Institute of Technology Research and Engineering. Turns mm -hmm. out this is an apocryphal legend. It's not true. It's the creation of James McCormick, an early board member who wanted a name that meant nothing but sounded evocative. And, and that's we, what they ended up with. we all? I mean, so, yeah. <laughs> so that was great. It was that's, like naming a child. Yeah. That's quite a story. Funny. That's quite a story. So you mentioned earlier, we were talking a little bit about, about proactive responses to technology. And, and I'm wondering, what, what does it mean exactly in the context of cybersecurity to be proactive? What does that look I, like? I, yes, I'm, I'm glad you asked. And, and if you heard me say it before, it's because some, it's something that I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, let's start with definitions. If you go to Merriam-Webster and to the Collegiate Dictionary, proactive means that you create or control a situation by causing something to happen rather than responding after it has happened. Conversely, mm -hmm. reactive means that you act in response to a situation rather than creating or controlling it. So what does that mean then in terms of cybersecurity? In the context of cybersecurity, in order to be proactive, you need to be able to take actions that would be able to prevent and or halt an attack before an attack attempt occurs in your ecosystem. That's how I define proactive. So, so then among the tools and technologies that are being used in cybersecurity, which of these would you call reactive and which would you characterize as proactive? Well, I, frankly, um, and, and maybe slightly sadly, I would respectfully submit that most cybersecurity technologies are all reactive. In other words, it is responding to an attack attempt in, that's already occurring in your ecosystem. So if you think about it, um, let's think of some examples, uh, endpoint protection, EPP, uh, endpoint detection and response, EDR, XDR. So the whole premise of the product is to react to something like an attack attempt that is currently in your computing ecosystem environment mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And I would submit, I'm not saying that these are bad things. I'm saying that it's reactive because the attacker has already made landfall in your computing environment. It's already... Um, somebody's already hit a website mm -hmm. or there's already a, a, a piece of grayware, uh, meaning you don't know if it's clean or dirty and it's already in somebody's inbox. And you're, you're trying to figure out what it is and to stop it before it goes further. But the point is, it's there. Mm -hmm. So right. I would argue that proactive cybersecurity solutions are much harder to come by. And, and frankly, as a as a vendor and a defense community, we're, we're just starting to figure those out. Proactive cybersecurity systems are, they're more rare, but I would argue that um, we talked about Conti and patch, patching the 44 CVEs that they leverage. I would argue right. that vulnerability patching is actually proactive because if you, if you haven't been hit yet, 
you're reducing your attack surface. And it's not simply compensating controls. It's not simply uh, countermeasures. Generally speaking, if you patch an exploitable vulnerability, it's binary. It's closed. It's either open or it's closed. It's like a door that's either locked or unlocked. It's, it's not halfway. You don't have something halfway locked. So if you patch something and close off the attack surface before the attacker gets there, that's proactive. So patching is proactive because you're getting the jump on the attacker, basically. Well, you're 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 closing a unlocked door or window that they normally would would read. Okay, I, I in preparation for this, I actually uh, found some stats. A pon recent Ponymon study showed that sixty percent, so six out of ten organizations said that at least one recent data br breach occurred because a vulnerability patch was available but was not applied. Couple that with the last uh, Verizon a data breach incident report, there are four key paths into your state, botnets, credentials, phishing, and exploitable vulnerabilities. And no organization is safe without a effective plan to handle all four. And then the last piece I'll quote for you is a study by our buddies over at Tenable showing that, mm -hmm. showing that one third of all detected vulnerabilities are still unremediated after over one year. That's insane. It is really insane if you think about it. So it becomes clear that there need to be better processes and tools and KPIs around this whole notion of exploitable vulnerability management. Now, I'm picking on it because patching mistakes in code, which is really what a vulner uh, exploitable vulnerability is, it's a mistake, right? Somebody programmed in a mistake. It proactively closes the attack surface against the adversary. So if a exploitable vulnerability is a key path into your state. The cool thing is if you patch it, the mm -hmm. attack surface is closed. It's not just defended. It's not that you put a guard or you know a weapon in front of it. You close the hole. They can't. They cannot use it. So I know mm -hmm. I'm banging on that a little bit, but that's what I think is really cool because the bad guys are 100% shut down from using the, the, those paths. So my point is that it's not like a piece of polymorphic malware where depending on what sort of EPP scanner you're using, you might have a high falsing rate, you might detect it, you might not. It's a piece of grayware that's changing signatures on machine to machine. There's no falsing rate with mm -hmm. patching an exploitable mm -hmm. vulnerability. It's closed. You yeah, shut the yeah. door. So yeah. I think that's a good place to start. Uh -huh. Makes a ton of sense. So let's talk about how organizations can actually use threat intelligence in order to protect themselves proactively. You know, what, what, what are the good places to start? Good question. Um, I would argue that you have to go both what I call top down as well as bottom up. Top okay. down would be to start reading, watching, understanding the overall threatscape. 80% of all hacks are done by organized crime. Now, what does that mean? That means they're nation states, they're, they're uh, large organized um, criminal groups. As defenders, and I was just reading an article that a lot of the ransomware that's out there, especially ransomware as a service, they actually have shareholders, they have board meetings, they have uh, some of the, it's, it's crazy, they're extremely organized. Mm -hmm. So we need to know what's happening outside of our sphere of influence and control that will have an impact on our overall operations, that's top down. Okay, so what kinds of actions in the top down zone, what kinds of actions can an organization take? What can you do? 
Great question. I would say um, at least two things. Number one, you have to plan for cybercrime losses. Now, that's not what everybody says. They're like, oh, we can stop you from any sort of breach. I actually think that that is not possible. There is no such thing as 100% prevention of incidents and, and, and breaches. Number two, we need to start measuring cyber risk from a business angle using business metrics and controls. Mm -hmm. So um, let me give you some more stats, Mark. The world spent $160 billion on cybersecurity last year. This will increase by, I think it was like 35 or 36% this year. We're going to grow our spend to around 300 billion by 2027. That's just four wow. years away. But cybercrime losses were 8.44 trillion last year. And this is, I, I got this from more than one source. A lot of it is uh, from US government sources and, and so on. So um, very solid statistics. And this will, is going to grow from 8.44 trillion. That's not, that's trillion with a T. It's going to grow mm -hmm. to 24 trillion by 2027. My point is that another thing is to do is that you have to estimate potential losses to your business and account for them. We're not going to be able to stop all incidents and breaches. They are a fact of life. We should account for them. Um, if you're a bank, it would be like banking errors. You're never going to get to zero banking errors. If you are a, a semiconductor manufacturer or manufacturing mm -hmm. company of any sort, right. you will never get 100% yield. So we need to survey the threat landscape. Yes, do our best to stop incidents and breaches, but we're going to have to estimate and make reasonable uh, assertions as to how many planned losses we think we're going to have. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that measuring cyber risk with business metrics and controls is the number two thing. What that means is that we need to find ways to make decisions through a business lens, through a business point of view that directly mm -hmm. controls and measures cyber risk. Uh, I would also further submit that there are three requirements for any metrics that you decide to use. Uh, they have to be, number one, they have to be linked to your business goals and cyber risk. Number two, they have to be linked to things that can be controlled either through processes or from technology or some sort of tooling that you have. And number three, they should be high quality metrics that can be trended. Don't report on activities, report on outcomes. Mm -hmm. Show that you can have a reduced cybersecurity outcome. And those are the three requirements you have to meet for any metrics from a business angle. And that last one is a key part of treating this as a business problem because it lets you project and and, yes. and, and allocate resources. Yes, yes. Okay, that, so. make, that makes a ton of sense. So can you give an example of, of, of what would be, what a pragmatic approach to reducing cyber risk would look like? Sure, sure. Um, let's go to the example that we had before, which was vulnerability patching. Okay. If you ask the question, how many days does it take to patch your systems? That is something that is directly related, if you think about it, to cyber risk. It's directly related to the value proposition that's at the intersection of the C-suite, SecOps, and ITOps. Mm -hmm. Why, you might ask. It equates to reduction in management of vulnerability exploitation time. Remember what I told you that it's generally binary, that if the vendor has a good patch, it closes the door. The, right. the problem is fixed. It's, it's, it's zero. It's no longer one, it's zero. So mm -hmm. if you want to equate reduction in management of vulnerability exploitation time or how long your organization is exposed to vulnerabilities. So let me give you an example. If company A takes 22 days 
to patch all 44 CVEs that Conti exploits, mm-hmm. the Conti ransomware. And company right. B takes 10 days or one half the time of company A, then I respectfully submit to you that company B has one half the exploitable vulnerability exposure time that company A has. Mm-hmm. That is a fact. Yeah, makes sense. Now, if you agree amongst SecOps, IT ops, and the C-suite, what vulnerability exploitation time is acceptable to your organization, then you can define what we call a protection level agreement or a PLA. So you agree, so, how long are you agreed to be uh, have exploitable vulnerability time? I'm got sorry, it. go ahead. Got it. No, no, that makes, that makes sense. So can you give a specific example of how you would use this, what, what you would do to reduce cyber risk in this instance, how you'd measure that? Okay, let's take a look at this. Now, I said that in order for any metric or agreement to matter to the C-suite, it has to be linked to business goals and cyber risk. I have <clears throat> submitted that you could reduce vulnerability exploitation time. It has to be based on things you can control through tools and processes. In this case, it's remediation processes, mm-hmm. uh, prioritization and remediation processes, and the patching technology, the automation technology used for that. And then I said the third thing was that it had to be high-quality Uh, metrics that could be trended and show outcomes. In this case, it's the number of days, uh, amount of time it takes you or what some people call patch cadence. That's what a protection level agreement is. It's an agreement by the business to the level of exploitable vulnerability exposure time that is considered acceptable. And the number of days is the cyber risk control point. More Hmm. days, more risk. Less days, less risk. But generally speaking, if you have a process that can patch things at a higher patch cadence, at a shorter patch cadence, it costs more. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a difference between money and risk. And that's a business decision. And that sounds like a metric that you could really use then to to plan out, you know, look look at the ROI that you want Absolutely. and need, plan your exposure and, and come up with the results and make sure you hit them. Yeah. So so let's say, let's say for example, I'm a I'm a US bank. Uh, how would I actually measure this and control it? It's funny that you ask, because I was talking to a European bank the other day and um, I was talking to them and let me me think, here's the example I gave them. Uh, They told me that they lose $50 million a day if the online banking servers are down. It was a pretty big bank. So that's a critical system for sure. So I would say, well, then what you need is a PLA or protection level agreement for your online banking servers. How many days does your group agree is the limit for when critical vulnerabilities will be remediated. So let's say, and I was talking to the CTO, CEO, let's say that the CEO says that based on the budgets agreed to with SecOps and IT ops, because those are the people who are actually going to be putting technology, money, and people and time against it. Let's say that a 10 day vulnerability exposure time is an acceptable time frame for the cyber risk. This is a time frame that would vary from company to company based on their tolerance for risk and their budget. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it has to be negotiated amongst the CEO, the security and the IT leadership. And again, <clears throat> the more you spend, the less time you're vulnerable. You spend and, and more. Ju- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and just to emphasize, that makes this a business decision. You yes. Know, ultimately. Yes. So it puts it, so, it puts it in the framework of business decision yes. making and, and therefore so, prioritization. Yes. ROI, so your 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 vulnerability exposure time goes down uh, if you spend more. 
if you spend less, your vulnerability exposure time goes up. And mm -hmm. so the CEO, just like with other pieces in, in their business decision portfolio, they have to ask what is justifiable for your stakeholders, for your shareholders, for your customers, for the board mm -hmm. of directors, so on. Mm -hmm. So let's say for argument's sake that the CEO and security and IT agree that 10 days would be the agreed protection level agreement. Anything less would be within the PLA. Anything past 10 days would be beyond the PLA. So you would graph this, and it's, if you're visualizing what I'm saying, you would just say that for the online banking servers, the number of days that it took you to patch something um, against whatever the threat is, what, whether it's Conti ransomware or the top attackers or uh, <clears throat> even the known exploitable vulnerabilities catalog, that would be your protection level agreement. And it could be a bar chart. It could be a column chart. It's very, very, very simple. So let me give you an example, Mark. If SecOps and ITOps work together and they beat the agreed upon PLA by two days, mm -hmm. then they showed <clears throat> that they were able to prove reduced cyber risk that was less than the agreed upon limit. So it meets all the business criteria. It's linked to maintaining revenue flow. It's within the business tolerance for risk and spend, which is 10 days. And it manages, manages business continuity based on concrete control points and business decisions. So that's why I like that example a lot. It's a great example. And it, and it, and it illustrates the top-down concept really very clearly as well. So how about bottom-up? Um, how, how would that work? Oh, yeah. I guess I did mention bottom-up. Um, bottom-up means that you need to start reading and understand threat intelligence on adversarial campaigns, uh, threat families like ransomware threat families, and, and also how they work. The initial vector of infection, I mean, how does it actually get into your ecosystem? Mm -hmm. How do they do transverse lateral movement? Now, these tend to be fairly technical topics. So this is going to be more of the IT team and the SecOps team as opposed to uh, uh, the C-suite. <clears throat> but you need to know these things. You need to know how do they escalate privileges? How do they get you know, mm -hmm. root server privileges? Um, what tactics, techniques, and procedures, what TTPs they're using? How to read a MITRE attack graph? how to read and construct a MITRE defend matrix to see how you would actually stop them and what you're actually doing to stop them, both reactively and proactively, reactively and proactively. So I was getting a sense from you before that proactive is better than reactive. I, I'm really not saying that. I'm saying that you need both, that you have to do everything that you can to have justifiable, non-brittle, resilient cybersecurity. I'm saying that the proactive pieces are harder to come by because okay. traditionally uh, the cyber security vendor market has focused on reactive things, frankly, because they're easier to ideate and figure out what to do. I see. Okay. They're, they're needed. They're needed, but they just tend to be reactive because some, that means that someone's already clicking on something they shouldn't. Right, That's right, fairly right. reactive. Now, if you just stopped them from actually even getting near you by, the, you know, they couldn't get in. Uh, if, if they're trying to exploit something in your ecosystem and you deny them the exploit, they can't get in. That's my point. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. So we talked a lot now about analysis and prioritization. Uh, so could you give me some examples of tools, technologies that, that actually help? I think the things that help the most are the things that increase the number of important things that you can do without having to think about them. And I think this is true 
for security, IT, as well as the C-suite. <clears throat> and I, I actually uh, cobbed that from uh, Alfred um, North Whitehead, who's one of my heroes. I, I like reading about people who, who have both philosophy and science and technology and mush them together. And, and uh, Dr. Whitehead was, was, is one of them. I would look <clears throat> for technologies and automation that take into account what's happening in the threatscape and directly incorporate it into automated analyses of your computing and data ecosystem. Now, the point here that I'm trying to make is that there is no way that you can just go to hundreds of sources of threat intelligence and then try to manually cross-correlate what's happening in your computing mm -hmm. estate and figure out what to do. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. I love reading reports from Trellix and CISA and MITRE about how some attack works or what some uh, adversary is doing. But you can't go and say, hey, guys, I read something and, and uh, do something about it. It has you have to be able to take the threat intelligence and incorporate it into some sort of um, automated analysis and automated remediation and automated actions. You, you can't do it manually. It's there's just too darn much of it. So well, and for, the, and for the response to scale, for one thing. Yes, exactly. And when you're talking about. Um, about things happening automatically without you thinking about it. That's really what we're talking about. It has to be able to scale gotcha. and you have to be able to do it in a way where you're not either thinking about it explicitly or taking action explicitly. It has to be automated. Got it. Okay. So I've, let me try to sum up because we've been through a lot of interesting material, okay. interesting <laughs> ideas. Let's, let's see where we are so far, okay? Because I, we want to make this actionable, clearly, okay? We want to look at what the steps are, okay? So, so, so far, here is what I've captured from what you had to say. Uh, you're going to collect and aggregate threat intelligence that's relevant to your situation. That's step one. Mm -hmm. You want to understand the overall threat landscape to put that mm -hmm. into context. You want to then take that information and analyze it and prioritize it, again, through that business lens, um, both from a top-down perspective and from the bottom up, okay? Mm -hmm. And that includes things like planning for losses and, mm -hmm. you know, and as I said, taking that business lens and, and viewing cyber risk from that perspective, treating it as basically an investment, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, that's number three. Number four is to actually integrate this threat intelligence into your security thinking, into your controls, into, into all of the processes and the tools that you're using, right? And particularly, you mentioned automation a few times, and we talked about, about the role of automation in scaling solutions, right? So, so you, you want to look for automated solutions that will incorporate, you know, effectively that threat intelligence into the analytics, into the solution overall, right? Um, yes. So after that, um, it makes sense to think that you'd be taking that framework and adapting your policies and procedures <laughs> relevant to, to security, right? Uh, to account for the information that you've taken in for account, to account for the decisions you've made on that basis and then perform vulnerability assessments, mm -hmm. uh, which is, which, you know, you've been describing in some detail, you know, uh, have I got that right so far? That's pretty darn good notes, Mark. So well, that's, that's pretty good. I didn't see it scribbling there. Maybe you're typing in your keyboard, but that's that's really good. There, there's so, also, there are a thousand ways to scribble, and this has been, <laughs> this has been one of them. Um, those are, those but, are but, really, really good notes. Yeah. But, but, a, but a particular thing that you've emphasized throughout, I mean, it really it came up at literally every step, is the question of vulnerability patching. And I'd like to kind of home on, in on that for a second. Mm -hmm. um, 
you mentioned it both in the top down and the bottom up context, right? Mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. mentioned it in the context of automation. And and also that was also the example you gave, you know, in terms of in terms of protection level agreements, in terms of PLAs, right? Yes. So yes. which which again makes this actionable at a business level. So what would you say on, on top of that? You know, given that that's your action framework, your framework of steps, um, what else would you add to that? You know, what, what else, what else do you need? What am I missing there? Well, let's, let's talk, you, you asked two questions there. What would I ask? And then uh, do I have any comment on vulnerability assessments? Mm-hmm. Sure. I submit that vulnerability patching is the low hanging fruit. If there are four, remember what uh, we read in the four ways into your state. So um, it was like uh, botnets mm-hmm. and it was uh, credentials and, um, uh, then, oh, I'm rem- I'm forgetting, but it was one of the four, right? And that if you think about it, there are actually pretty good technologies that take care of three of the four. The fourth one, which doesn't have a whole lot of um, fully integrated, you know, really super. Um, technologies that bridge the gap between security and IT. And, and that's my point. Generally speaking, at mm-hmm. I, I've interviewed hundreds of companies, and generally speaking, SecOps and IT ops, the security guys will identify the vulnerability, mm-hmm. but they don't get to press the patch button. And the reason why they don't get to pe- uh, press the patch button is that's the domain of IT operations. Mm-hmm. And at most places, these guys are at loggerheads. They don't get along. In fact, I was talking to someone where he's the CISO, and he says, I don't get along with the CIO. And he was being really candid, by the way. He says, we have arguments in, in front of the executive tier because they're not moving fast enough, and we told them what they need to patch. And then the IT guys come in, and they say, yeah, they gave us this ginormous spreadsheet of stuff to patch. We, we can't just declare maintenance windows for the entire ecosystem for half the day of every working day. That's not how this works. We've got to get business done or nobody gets bread or rice on the table. So there, there is, in fact, a, a bit of a chasm between security and IT. And we now know that business is being held to account. Why? Because there's so darn many breaches. So <clears throat> the business people are saying, Listen, we have got to figure this out. Okay, we need to have ways of measuring cyber risk. We need to have ways of controlling cyber risk. And what I'm doing is I'm saying that based on my assessment, that remediation of exploitable vulnerabilities is a very, very low-hanging fruit place to start. Mm -hmm. But you need to have technologies that bridge the gap. You need to form alliances amongst three groups, security, IT, and business, because business is being held to account for reducing the cyber risk. And right. they can't do it, but just through a like a pure financial decision, they, they have to be coordinated with security and IT. I, I, I know I'm flogging that horse a little bit, and it's, it's probably down for the count, but hopefully you, you, you got it. No, but that no. makes a ton of sense. And so, so vulnerability patching basically is a way to bring all of those those three yes. groups. Yes, it's a great place to start. It's bring a, them it's to a the really table. obvious place to start. Mm-hmm. So um, if I were to add to your list, 
I would say um, if you either want or need to touch up on operational intelligence, then you're going to have to enhance your threat hunting capabilities. And there's a ton of technologies out there to do that. You'll want technology that can see and measure and analyze what's happening on your devices and your organization. Ideally, you'll want something that can control the endpoints as well, uh, right. change to their state through mediation, either you know, re-imaging or basically if you, if you can't bring it down, suppose it's a high availability server pair and you can't just you know, shut the whole thing down, then you're gonna want something that can actually go in there and make some changes to keep you operational, but still close off various holes. We saw this uh, really, really clearly with things like Log4j. Right. The, yeah, uh, Log4j easily, easily exploited remote um, uh, control um, uh, type of exploit, um, easily done by a script kitty. And you, you needed to coordinate between security and IT to get that done. Um, the last thing, last couple things I would say, well, one thing is share and collaborate. Not only does the C-suite, SecOps, and IT ops need to collaborate, but collaborate with those outside of your organization. Oh, so what's, yes, what's terrific about yeah. cybersecurity is that the entire family of defenders are all aligned together to share and collaborate and help each other out. So join groups, there's a ton of them out there. Um, the, some of them are called SACs, ISAC, and F, FS ISAC. I'm probably mispronouncing it. But there's a lot of, of various organizations out there. I, I believe CIS is trying to put some groups together as well. So be willing to share what you learn. Be willing to learn from others. And then if there's a final one, I would say this is a marathon, okay? We're going to have to stay informed. We're going to have to evolve. We're going to have to keep pushing the limits. Uh, there is no easy fix here. Uh, just like there's, just like there's no way for us to have zero incidents and breaches as an industry. There's no way uh, that we can do this on our own without evolving and be keeping informed and pushing the limits. That's what I would say. I, I know it's a little touchy feely, but it's true. No, but it's real. And and it seems like a good place to wrap. We're just about out of time. Uh, but this has been an extraordinarily informative session, a really great conversation, Robert. Thank you. Um, thank you, Mark. Um, this is Mark Durham. Again, we're, we're at Digital Plus Insights. And I've been speaking with Robert Leong. He's Senior Director and Head of Product Management for Big Fix uh, at HCL Software. And really, thank you for this exhaustive and very, very practical uh, <laughs> uh, set of steps that people can take to protect themselves. At a, at it's a level been of a pleasure. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thanks so much, Robert. Take care, everyone. See you next time.